think about how delicately you hold your baby, you dress your baby, and you feed your baby. We do that because they're adorable, of course, but also because their skin is delicate. Know this. There is only one diaper brand that we recommend to give you the gentle protective care your little one needs. And that's Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Their Swaddler's diaper absorbs wetness better versus the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection to keep your baby's skin dry, healthy, and beautiful. And when you use Swaddler's in tandem with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, you'll keep your baby's skin healthy. The wipes are made from 100% plant-based cloth, and you won't have to worry about tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. That's right. So download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. I walked through fire. I came out the other side. Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming back to We Can Do Hard Things. Today is a very special day. You are going to be happy you joined us for this one because today we are talking with our dear friend and hero, Tarana Burke. You should know that we talk in this episode about sexual abuse and trauma and some heavy things. And so if you need to protect yourself from that, please do. But also please know that this conversation is one of the most joyful, energizing, and hopeful conversations you'll hear. It's like the paradox of the prophets, right? It's the flip side of carrying pain is this extraordinary gift of holding and spreading joy. And there is nobody who um, shows us that gorgeous paradox more beautifully than Toronto Burke. So you can do hard things. You can share in this hard, joyful, soul-witnessing, heart-expanding conversation. For more than 25 years, activist and advocate Tarana J. Burke has worked at the intersection of sexual violence and racial justice, fueled by commitments to interrupt sexual violence and other systemic inequalities disproportionately impacting marginalized people, particularly Black women and girls. Tarana has created and led various campaigns focused on increasing access to resources and support for impacted communities, including the Me Too movement, which to date has galvanized millions of survivors and allies around the world. Tarana is my personal hero. Her new book, Unbound, is out now. And I'll tell you that after this conversation, my sister texted me and she said, does the J in Tarana J. Burke stand for joy? It has to. (laughs) I said, no, it doesn't. But in our heart, it does. Let's jump right into our conversation with Tarana Burke. Okay, everybody, welcome back to We Can Do Hard Things. Um, I need to tell you first off that your small little loving team of Abby, Amanda, and I have been losing our damn minds about the interview we're doing today. If we do interviews for the next 20 years, there will never be a more important interview There will never be anyone whose work is more important to us and to the world than the person we're interviewing today. I know that with every bone in my body. Um, And so that's why we were and are freaking out. That's why I'm wearing a very small tank top because I'm already (laughs) sweating. There's this idea 
that what you do is you look at the world and there's this like power in the in the center. And then if you keep going out, you go towards the people that are the least protected and you stand with those people. Because if you stand with those people, then you, by definition, catch everybody else. Tarana Burke spends her life standing with um, Black girls in America who are some of the least protected people in our culture. And she has been doing it for 25 years and she does it with grace and power like I've never seen before. And I just think she's the most important effing person on earth. So Tarana Burke, <laughs> thank you. You can do hard things. Tarana. Man, listen, Glennon, I need to carry you around with me so that you can, I can have a little drum roll and then Glennon <laughs> comes out. i a matter of fact, I'll just tape it because I know you're busy. <laughs> I would, that's what I can do. She can be your exactly. hype girl. She can be your hype girl. I am. That's what I'm doing. I love it so much. <laughs> I love it. Before we get into this brilliant freaking book, Unbound, which, um, I mean, we all knew who read it before it came out that it was going to be a huge success. Mm. It's already broken into the top, the number three on the New York Times list, right? Yeah. Oprah's crying over it over <laughs> and over and over again. People are comparing it to I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, which I'm sure is just no big deal for you at all. Right, Trana? <sighs> Good God. <laughs> I'm like, guys, you know, it's How a lot. are you? How are you? I am. Have you, um, I don't know if you've seen many Spike Lee movies, but he has this thing that he does in a lot of his movies where the characters just sort of float like this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I feel like I'm floating in a Spike Lee movie. It's, it's a very strange, I I think you described it when we were talking the other day about like almost out of body experience. Mm -hmm. Like I'm watching it happen, but I'm also over here like, oh, that's happening. (laughs) It's very strange. It's hard to explain. And then I have these moments when I look over and I see my, my name really big on the book. And I'm like, oh, my God, I wrote that. <laughs> exactly. I was like, oh, my God. I- you wrote the hell out of it is what you did. You wrote the hell out of it. <laughs> and- well, let's start at the start. Let's, let's start, start, at, the start. at the beginning of Unbound. Yeah. And parts of the beginning of your life. Um, which is, you know, sort of where the origin of all of your work begins, which is when you were sexually assaulted as a mm-hmm. child. Yeah. Abby, can you read that passage for us? I had no real grasp of the gravity of what was happening, but I knew it wasn't right. It made me feel nasty and dirty and wrong, not realizing that he was wrong and that he was the culprit. I thought we were wrong. Mm-hmm. And later you say, The only clear memory I have is running through the litany of rules I had broken. Never go off without permission. Never be out of sight when you're playing outside. Never come upstairs late. Stay away from the grown-up boys. Never, ever let anyone touch your private parts. What I know for certain was that I was in big trouble. I hardly ever broke rules, and certainly never this many. You later write, I began to put away the memory of what the boy had done to me because of what I thought it said about me. My insides strained to accommodate this new information, but they couldn't. And so they split. In the place I'd tucked away from Mr. West and my mom was the real me 
the bad me. On the outside, I would pretend I was good. Now, Tarana, I need to know, what was that like as a Mm. kid? For you to be abused and then to believe it was your own fault. I try my best to explain it in in those kind of details because I'm a worrier by nature, right? Like my, I, I'm I'm always thinking ahead. Something good happens. I'm thinking about the next thing. How what can go wrong, right? That's been since I was a kid, and 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 probably stems from this. I just felt like I was constantly. It's like baggage. I was constantly living with a secret, and I was so 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 afraid that somebody would find out. And on a small scale, it would be like, you know, if you got like a stain on your dress or, you know, a mark on the wall or something like that, that you were trying to hide. I, I've done that, too, where I've like rearranged the furniture in my room so my mom couldn't see that I got a big skid mark on the wall. And then you're like afraid every time she walks past that part of the room, like I'm going to get mm. caught. That's that's what it felt like. It felt like I was constantly in fear of being found out. Um and so it made me anxious mm-hmm. and it made me um, learn to perform really, really early. Mm-hmm. Right. I could, I could, and, and who knows where I pulled that from, but I just learned to, I showed up and I was just everything I thought good girls would be like. And the funny thing is, is it's who I was, right. It's who I was prior to this. And I was like, I'm just going to pretend to be that person again. Cause Apparently, I must be this bad person, but I'm going to keep pretending to be who I had already been being, if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It was just the fear of constantly being found out until, you know, I found some coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And even that wasn't really helpful, but. What do you think, how do we, because so much of what I read about in that part is the rules about you never doing things, the rules That's about right. girls never doing things Yep. leads yep. then little girls to when they get abused thinking, oh, it's because I broke the rules. It's not because they did How something wrong. Switch that. That is, I, you know, I used to talk to parents about this when I did these workshops that I understand, particularly in communities of color, but I think all little girls have this. It's a it's a thing that we do to look to to children, particularly little girl children, that we, adults don't realize you're setting the child up. We take rules seriously as kids, you know. You don't run with scissors. You don't cuss. You don't, you know, like those things are reinforced over and over and over again. And we also know as children, there are the spoken rules, and then there are the unspoken rules. So you may have been you may have been told to say please and thank you and not to run with scissors, but there's something about that room that you know you don't go in that room when the door is closed, right? right. Nobody's ever said that's a rule, but there are messages messages that we get from adults that that kind of sit with us as children. And so I had that little litany of rules, but I also had there were other sort of unspoken messages that you got, and what what adults neglect to do is they neglect to say, if one of these rules are broken, meaning those like, don't let anybody touch your private parts or don't go off with boys, older people or anything like that, they neglect to say, but if that rule is broken, it's not your fault. If somebody breaks that rule, it's always the adult's fault. Yes. Right? You get these messages that you get ingrained in your brain that says, oh God, I did something wrong. I shouldn't. Nobody told me about who else was wrong in that equation. And so 
I think that's the problem with a lot of what happens to a lot of little girls that they girls are just riddled with rules and 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 protocols and priests, you know. I can think of so many times when I've been told or I've seen other little girls be told who are fully dressed, go put some clothes on mm. because a man comes in the house, mm-hmm. right? I could have a short set on, a tank top. I'm, I'm a child, right? With a short set and a tank top on. And, and it's like, I'll never forget, this is a little bit of a hood story, but I'll never forget going to visit my uncle in jail when I was a, a preteen. I must've been like, I don't know, maybe nine or 10 or something like that. And we got to the prison and they made my grandfather turn around. I couldn't go in. I'm a kid, a little kid, but because I had a spaghetti strap tank top on, they said it would be a distraction to the other prisoners, oh, the other inmates. Yeah. And I, and I like, you just get th- those kind of messages from different places, right? The school dress codes, mm-hmm. you know, all of these different places, girls get these messages that we are the guardians of our bodies. And if somebody is attracted to us, we're, it's our fault because we that's didn't right. do enough to protect ourselves. That's right. So that's where that stuff came from. Mm-hmm. And that they can't control themselves. Yeah. Okay, so you know I love good wordplay. And Third Love is crushing their wordplay here. When you have a bra that pinches or slips or just isn't comfortable at all or is comfortable but isn't your style, you've got problems. <laughs> How excited was Third Love when they thought of problems? Well done, Third Love. I see you. When you wear Third Love bras, you've got no problems. They fix the problem of size exclusivity with their famous half cup sizes that revolutionized the industry by giving more options to find a bra that fits. And they fixed the problem of guessing what bra will fit you with their virtual fitting room and other helpful guides, a bra size chart, a bra 101 education section that's basically an FAQ for all your burning questions, and a ton of great reviews from real people. My sister just texted me, 99 problems, but pinching <laughs> isn't one. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code podcast15. I thought about this when I was reading, you know, there are so many parts where if things had been different, you may, in a certain situation, you may have been able to share the truth, but the way things yeah. were set up for you and for so yeah. many girls, there's nowhere safe to share. Um, you know, I was thinking about your parents, the mm-hmm. amazing Mr. Wes, who just, <laughs> oh my God, I, I mean, wait so till much. you guys read this man. But there was one moment where you were walking down the stairs of a, of a building and you ran into a woman that you- Ms. Davis. Yeah. Ms. Davis, right? Mm-hmm. Who you loved and- you had a moment where you thought about telling her something that had just happened to you with the boy. And she said, these little boys can't keep their damn hands to themselves. My baby, you got a daddy who will go to his grave to protect you. So be careful because we need big Wes around here. Oh, and, and that, I mean, I think that is, that was a very important part for me to, to include because it was important for, 
when it happened to me, because it just brought me, and I was 12 when that happened. It brought me back to being seven. And it's like, right, that's what I knew. That's what I knew. I do not want anything to happen to Mr. West. I'm just going to, I'm going to leave this alone. And I think a lot, in a lot of instances, there are people who experience some sexual violence and don't tell because they don't have a support system. They think they won't be believed. That happens a lot. I actually had the opposite problem where I did have a support system. I was, there was no question that, that Mr. West and my mother or my grandfather, whoever would believe me. It was just what would happen if they did, which brings me to another thing that adults do and we don't realize it. You see this every year. It drives me crazy during prom. You have the girls who get ready for prom and the father or brother or uncle with the shotgun Ugh. or the, you know, or the big, you know, bullying pose and saying, you do something to this girl and I'm going to kill you, whatever. A lot of us grew up with parents who said things like, who did say, if somebody touches you, it's not your fault. But the way they said it was, if somebody touches you, I'll kill them. Mm-hmm. Something happens to you, you come to me, I will I will bury them. I heard that over and over again. I'm my mother, I don't play about my child. I've done it, right? Mm-hmm. What that did was now make me responsible for them. Yes. yes. Not only am I responsible for my own protection of my body, but now I'm responsible for the adults. Oh my God, I, I want to tell because I know something is not right here. But if I do, my dad is going to jail. Mm-hmm. And it would be my fault for something that I did. I broke the rules and I made my father go to jail. And it just, this is me at seven. These are the like, we underestimate how human children are. Yes. <laughs> we are watching all these things. You're taking it in like a sponge. We are little human. Those are little human beings. And one of the things I knew because I did live in, a, in an urban community that was over-policed and under-resourced is that I knew what consequences were. I knew what jail was. I knew what the police did and how they operated in our community. And I knew it was never good news when they came around. So I didn't want to, no, not for me. So, so it's just, it's just, we have to be super careful about the messages that we give, that we pass on to our kids because little kids are little worry warts. They don't want mommy and daddy to be hurt. You know, just it's just it gets complicated for us, for us meaning children. <laughs> yes. Speaking as my small Toronto self, mm. and yeah. that was really your reality. I mean, it wasn't a perception of yours; it was a real responsibility yeah. that you bore. Because one of the things you do so beautifully in this book, over and over, is that you portray impeccably these kind of double binds that you're in, and I feel like so many girls and women go through this, particularly. Um, black and brown girls and most suffocatingly black and brown survivors is that it's like the protection provided by your community is what saves you. But the need to protect your community is what silences you. Exactly. At the very same time. It's a, it's a, Ooh, that, that's a very succinct way to put that. And, and it's exactly what it is. And you are just caught in the middle. Like we did a PSA once for, um, I was just talking about this last night, but this, this Honduran woman was talking about being assaulted by her uncle when she was 16 and didn't say anything because the uncle was the citizen and her family was undocumented. 
And she did not want to involve any law enforcement in their lives. She didn't want any police to come around at all because it put their her whole family at risk. And the uncle, knowing that he had the privilege of being a citizen and could change their lives at any time, held that over their head. And so a lot of times in Black and brown communities, there is a whole set of other things that are being thought of on top of the shame that you're carrying, on top of the guilt and the, all of the things that, that come almost automatically when you experience sexual violence is compounded. Mm. Mm. And then Toronto, for that message, especially because you work so closely, you work with little black girls, mm. but like for a little girl to hear that from Miss Davis. So her message was your, the little boys can't control themselves. Mm-hmm. Your dad won't be able to control himself. Mm-hmm. You're so you have to control your truth. So you, you at this young age is all on you, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And and I took that very seriously. Okay. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, our little our little bodies only can hold and deal with so much. And so that starts coming out in other ways because it's got to. Yeah. And then we have the church. And I the can't, church. I will never, ever stop laughing about reading about little Tirana <laughs> in in Catholic church because you know, we have a different back background. I was a little white girl, but I also <laughs> lied in confessional over and over again or made up sins to cover up my true badness. Tarana <laughs> says, I would go to confession regularly to confess a cover sin, <laughs> lying, swearing, or something else instead of what I really held inside. I'd quietly ask God for forgiveness for lying, and then I'd redeem myself by doubling whatever <laughs> penance the priest gave. But what I need to tell you, my favorite part is that when little Tirana would go outside to say her double penance, she would only say the first couple because you have to understand that when you're a Catholic kid, other kids are watching. Watching, That's right. <laughs> and so if you're sitting your ass in the pew for a long time, they will know you did something really what bad. What did you do? Tirana's exactly. doing three rosaries. Exactly. We know what's up. <laughs> because because in school, in Catholic school, most kids, I loved confession, but most kids want to just get through it. So you come out and you do your rosary, your 10 Hail Marys, four fathers, whatever. <laughs> in my mind, I had to do like 20 of them. So I'm just like, our father who are in heaven, everybody look at me. <laughs> and then and then I'd be like in the lunch line, like here, Mary Fuller Grace Love. <laughs> <laughs> It was, it, it's a, it's a, it's such a bananas way to live though. I'd be like, <laughs> confession time. I liked it, but also it was so weird because it would take me like two days to get through what I thought I had to, sometimes I'd write it. You know how you have to write um, in detention. I will not talk. I will not, mm-hmm. I would just like write out Hail Mary's or our father or the apostles creed or whatever. Because mm-hmm. I'm just I like, remember. I got to get through. You remember, right? I was mm-hmm. like, in choosing to do wrong and failing to do good. Yes. And then yes. and then also, I was like, I was like one of the pips. When we got to that part, I'd be like, I have sinned against you and your church. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, you don't even know how bad I have sinned you. <laughs> I have sinned against you and your church. <laughs> and it would be like, whoo. I get to say that out loud, right? I was, I was, I mm. talk about in the book. I mean, Catholicism both saved and ruined me in some ways, mm-hmm. you know? But mm-hmm. in that moment, I do, I I really wanted to talk about that because it was such a saving grace for me because that, speaking about what you're saying, that duality that I was holding felt like 
It's like putting on a fur coat and jumping in a pool, right? mm. you know, and you get it. It's just this heaviness that you always have. And so when I, what I had with confession in this relationship that I wanted with God was, I know, you know who I am. I'm just going to keep apologizing. Like, I know that you are merciful and I know that you are generous with your mercy and abundant in grace. And I just can I please, 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 if I keep praying, will you just keep giving it to me? That was, it was a real savior for me as a child, because if not, then I would have been buried in just the guilt and the shame with no release for it. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of criticism about Catholicism, I know, but that, mm-hmm. I don't know that I would have made it hmm. with through that time period without it. So there was something liberating for you. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of Catholicism, it was mm-hmm. while you were preparing for the sacrament of confirmation, your grandfather prioritized passing down to you mm-hmm. the, you know, racial theory and black liberation texts, which seemed to me as yeah. I was reading your story a sacred sacrament sort of in your life as well. Of its own. Yes, exactly. It allowed you, it equipped you that even you say, even when you were a young girl, you could smell white supremacy from a mile away because (laughs) of that framework that you had, um, that you had been reading and internalizing. How vital was having that consciousness that was so subversive to everything that you were being told, you know, in all the schools and all around you to the person that you'd become and the work that you would do? I think it was, it was critical. And I, I think both of those things were critical. I'm Mm -hmm. so glad that I was grounded in my faith really, really early. I really, really enjoyed being Catholic. (laughs) Like I did. I just, all the things I did my, you know, I was baptized at like seven or eight months, but I did my communion and my confirmation and I did all the things. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm also really glad that my grandfather came in at the point that he did because, because of how much I enjoyed being Catholic and because of the release that I got from confession and that kind of thing. I probably was very close to, being, to slipping into being um, obsessive, probably, right? And so what, what bringing this consciousness did was help me balance some of that out. And and see a broader view of the world. So it's not, I don't, this is not the only thing that's liberating. It began to it began to feel liberating to me to understand who I was in the world and like have something else to think about besides my sins, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because the flip side of the liberation is that Catholicism makes you think about your sins all the time, mm-hmm. right? Just all the time. You sin, sin, sinny, sin, sinner. And you just, you know, and everything's a mistake. I would, I would like. I don't know if y'all do this, but you know how you walk in front of a church and you're supposed to make the sign of the mm-hmm. cross? Mm-hmm. I have ran back a block. Oh. <laughs> okay? Yes, we do. So yes. you like, wait, did I? Yeah. And so now I'm in front of the church just doing this, like, I mean, just stuff like that. that I know. And then you're like, wait, healthy. is this faith or superstition? Because <laughs> it feels a lot like superstition. <laughs> I'm like, why did Jesus kick over the tables in the temple for me to run a block back? <laughs> To make sure that I make the sign of the cross. Just in but, case. Just in case. But also, <laughs> right. But also, I'm going to do it just in case. That's right. Yep. And so I think that I would have got, I would have gone down a rabbit hole with 
Catholicism if I didn't have this thing to interrupt that mm-hmm. and 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 balance it out. The grounding doesn't go anywhere. And it gave me, being Catholic early gave me, a, set me up for my faith later, mm-hmm. right? I'm Christian, but I don't identify, I'm not Catholic anymore. I was able to pull the things that I needed, the good stuff, and figure that out later on. But at the point my grandfather came in and I started understanding, it, it helped me shift and like sort of focus on something else. Yeah. There's a bigger thing in life than like sins I might have, you know, done and things like that. And so I'm really glad. And I, I don't, he didn't know what was going on, like in behind closed doors, but I think he was looking at me like, this ain't, no, <laughs> this is not. And I found out, this is a small tidbit, I found out later. So my grandfather, I found out later, so I put in the book, that he went to a, um, a, he was in a Catholic boys' home when he was growing up. And so he had a really sour view of Catholicism. Mm-hmm. But he believed in letting his children choose their own path. And my mother chose to be Catholic, much to his chagrin. <laughs> <laughs> And then I did. So I guess he was like, I'm about to put it. I have to intervene somewhere. <laughs> well, thank God he did, though, Tarana, because you just kind of you took what you wanted from the Catholicism. But his mm-hmm. framework became part of your faith, too. Right. I mean, I absolutely. Feel like your faith is so social justice. So, you know, it's it, it was it's like those two got smushed together and you left behind what you didn't want of Catholicism and it became who you are now. It's so beautiful. Pod Squad, some of what we share with you on the show are our individual unique experiences in therapy and the takeaways that help us grow, appreciate each other, and navigate this beautiful life we're doing together. Thank you for doing it with us. But the things we talk about in therapy itself, these are things we wouldn't necessarily share with just anyone. I think there are a few things more important than finding the right person to share your deepest thoughts, feelings, and questions with like a therapist. That's why we are thrilled about Alma's support of our show. They're big believers that you need the right someone to talk to, not just anyone. Alma helps you to find a therapist who gets you based on your needs, someone with whom you'll feel comfortable, heard, secure. Plus, and this shouldn't be overlooked, over 96% of therapists at Alma accept insurance because you want to pick someone based on the right fit, not just based on finances. You can browse their directory now. You don't even need to create an account. Visit helloalma.com slash hard things to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash hard things. Somebody said this to me, but it made so much sense. And now I'm I'm sorry if that person's listening, that I'm not crediting you. But somebody (laughs) said something to me about, do I think that my love of confession, do I ever think about how my love of confession ties to the movement and the work and how that is sort of grounded in confession to some degree? And I said, oh, that's really profound. (laughs) I I had not thought of it, but I've been thinking about it ever since they said it. And it does make sense that 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 nugget stayed, there is something liberating about getting that, getting truth out of your body, right? Mm-hmm. Getting it out of your system and confessing not to the world, even, even if it's to God, if it's to yourself, it's, if it's in, I tell people, if it's in your journal, whatever, 
there is something, the, the part that felt liberating, I also feel like I held on to that. And it helped me be a truth teller. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I really do enjoy telling the truth. I just enjoy it. It's really, really feels good, you know? But when you say that, it reminds me of the, the first time you sat um, in front of the mirror and you mm-hmm. said it was after heaven, mm-hmm. right? And you said, um, I was raped. They molested me. I didn't want it. I didn't like it. I'm sorry. Confessional mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And then you said it was out of my body for the first time and I was still alive. <laughs> I was still standing with my truth on the outside. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think we all know this feeling of the a thing that we're holding regard. It could be anything, but the thing that we're holding that if you articulate it, it makes it true. And we're more scared of that thing being true out in the world. Mm-hmm. And I had that thing had balled up inside of my body and, and the, you know, I, I talk about it being in the pit of my stomach for so long that I was just scared. Like it would come up and I could think it, but I couldn't say it like out loud. And I think some part of me thought if I say this out loud, I'll die. Right. It's over. I'm just, this is it. Or I don't, I don't know, just whatever dramatic thing might happen. And I forced myself to say it to look at myself while I said it. And I was like, oh, look at me. (laughs) I'm still here. (sighs) And then, Mm. you know, I have that other thing that happens later on in the book, um, which Oprah calls, you had a dark night of the soul. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's also, (laughs) yes. Did y'all say the same thing? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I I had to go look. I've heard that term so many times in my, like, throughout life, but I had to actually go look it up when she said it. And I was like, oh, Oh, yeah. Okay. That seems dead on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's incredible. What an incredible part of the book. I loved the way you talked about yourself as a teenager so much, Trana. I thought the (laughs) the parts where you really talked about what it was like to be a teenage girl, kind of protecting your hurt with this ferocity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Was so amazing. And those are some of my favorite parts, but after sort of a few incredible passages about your teenage years and about some violence and fighting, um, that happened, you say it's the trap in which so many black girls find themselves either Mm -hmm. performing our pain or performing through it. I couldn't quite, this is a little bit later. I couldn't quite grasp the shame, grief, vulnerability, and emotional pain. I didn't understand anxiety, so I had no way to explain the fluttering in my chest and rock-hard feeling in my stomach that paralyzed me at any given moment. I didn't understand why I had to keep these things to myself. I just knew I had to. I had to keep performing. And there was no air for me, a dark-skinned Black girl who had been damaged and used. There was no air for me to be anything but what they said I was. Girls like me didn't get the air to cry, the air to release our shame, the air to say, I don't want to fight you. I don't even know why I'm so mad at you, except for that you look like me and who the fuck am I? We didn't get the air to be reborn and handled warmly. So that last line is from Ntozaki Shange's book, For Colored Girls. 
Um, and, and I wanted to kind of bring it full circle because I'm, I'm talking about that line. I used to say there was no air and that's the best way I can think about <laughs> when I would see other people, when I would see other girls who were prettier than me or more popular or just what, from, from my estimation seemed free, um, it just felt like the air was rare for them, right? It was just, they had, they like they breathed a different air, they lived a different life. And girls like me just didn't have it. We couldn't, <clears throat> and it also spoke to like this feeling, I, I get it, I'm having it, not having it now, but it, recalling it now, like this feeling of just not being able to have a full breath before there was always something, whether it was a thought or an action or a thing, there was just always something and it didn't allow you to, breathe in and breathe out and just like live. And anger and rage felt really, really good after performing Good Girl for so long. It just felt like, fuck it. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I don't know what to do next. And I think this is how we, cycle through coping mechanisms, right? I tried the good girl thing. It's not, it's not helping. I still feel this way. Let me try this other thing, you know? And, and I was fortunate because that could have been, I tried drugs, you know, to cope and, or I tried alcohol and let me try drugs now. Let me try the, you know, like there's so people don't realize what brings people to those coping mechanisms. We just look at the end result. So, oh, that's an alcoholic. That's a drug addict. That's a bad girl. Mm-hmm. So I'm a teenager who will bite your head off, who will fight anybody who steps to me and says anything crazy, but not a single adult says, what happened to your heart? How did you get here? I'm still a child, but we don't get seen as children. You just go from whatever small person to, to this now adult many adults and I'm only held accountable for the consequences of the things that happened to me, but not the root cause of them. Nobody is digging into the root cause. And so you get what you get. And I was giving out, (laughs) I was dishing it out as quick early (laughs) and often. (laughs) For years, you thought that the assault on you wasn't, something that someone did to you or even even something that happened to anyone else. Um, and then one day um, you snuck uh, Maya Angelou's I Know Where the Cage Bird Sings from your mother's collection. And um, you wrote, when I read about what happened to a young Maya Angelou, I was able to read her as innocent in a way I didn't allow for myself. Maya was decent and nice, and it seemed egregious that God would have allowed something so horrible to happen to her. It was the first time I ever realized a little girl like her could have gone through what I went through. I finished the book and kept what was now, in my mind, our secret. To my 12-year-old self, Maya Angelou was just another name on my mother's bookshelf. She wasn't Dr. Maya Angelou, the esteemed poet, author, activist, and all-around legend. She was a lady who wrote a book that shared my secrets. She was my confidant. I no longer felt alone. Yeah, that was, it's like having a, uh, 
what do they call those? Like your ghost pal or your secret pal? Mm-hmm. What do kids call that? Imaginary Pet- friends. Imaginary yeah. friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like having that. And I don't know, I don't know that I didn't think it only happened to just the two of us, but I was just, I didn't know anybody in real life. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever talked about it or said anything like that until I was much older. So it was like, oh my God, this is, but it was the feeling that she talked about, right? And it's always the, it's not the details ever. It's the feeling like it was her fault and not wanting to speak words because what happened to him now is her fault. And all of those things kind of sat with me and I was like, this is amazing. I have a friend, <laughs> even though my friend is in the book. But I mean, I thought, you know, I read Judy Bloom, you know, and Tiger Eyes, and I thought those were my friends too. So I was just that kind of kid. <laughs> <laughs> Same. Same. And then she became not so imaginary friend. No. She be- when you first, when you first heard her, heard her. But that yeah. was so amazing, Tarana, because I just, that part just, I mean, just knowing you, right? Because mm-hmm. you have this heartbreak and pain that started your work in your life. And then you have this ferocious joy that is why ever the whole world falls in love <laughs> with you. And so to see you experience Maya Angelou first as somebody who was hurt like you, and yeah. then to read in your book later, you experiencing her in high school right? Your high school honors English class yes. where your white man teacher put on Dr. Maya Angelou reading Phenomenal Woman, mm-hmm. performing it. And you had the most beautiful experience where you saw her power and her joy. And you say, as I sat tuning out my teacher, my mind returned to what I had just seen. How had a woman who had been through what I'd been through been able to claim such confidence and pride while I was founding, finding newfound comfort and anger. She was smiling while I was lashing out. She was laughing and reciting beautiful poetry. And then later you say more than anything, I contemplated the question that eventually became central to my healing. If what I saw was real, how could a body that holds that kind of pain also hold joy? Hmm. Can you talk to us about what that meant to see her in all her glory, knowing that she was your friend who experienced what right. you experienced? It, it was, oh, it was life changing, but it was also like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, I, you know how I, sometimes you have like little kid notions in your mind and then you find out the adult real thing. And it was, it was that moment of like, I thought, Okay. I thought that I thought I thought that what we were doing, Maya, Angelo, and I, we were faking it until we make it, essentially. I didn't have that terminology, but it was like you sure she writes books. I'd never seen her. I'd never like saw her on television, anything. I'd only read her books. So in my mind, it's just like I don't know what I thought in my mind, but I didn't think that. And when I saw and you know, she had this eloquent way that she spoke and and it was so confident and it all felt real. And I was like, oh my God, I am not real. <laughs> like, mm. I am not a real person. I am, I am a shell of a person. Like I, everything I'm doing is performance. I'm not, I don't even know. I mean, this, I don't know that I had this deep of a thought like this at 15, but essentially I am just 
piecing together what I can to live. I'm just trying to survive, right? I'm just trying to get through these days and hope nobody finds out who I am. But she's like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> Look at all of this joy. My name is Maya Angela. I was just like, yo, how do you do that? And what I know, what I knew for myself was that this person, this body that I had was constantly felt like it was in pain. When I calmed down, when I wasn't running track or in the honors bowl or doing something to impress some people in my quiet time, I felt pain all the time. I felt sadness, a really, really deep sadness. And so I was searching for that sadness in her face. I was searching for it in her voice, in her something. I thought I'll be able to see it. And I just couldn't. And I'm like, okay, does the sadness go away? Does the pain go away? Does the joy and pain? I I, I have the journal at the top. I just wrote joy, pain, question. Mm. Like, this is, how does this work? But what it did because, and I, I thank God for curiosity because I was also just very curious, honestly. Like there was the, I want to feel better thing, but it was also like, yo, how does this work? <laughs> Let me, maybe I've been thinking about this wrong. And I just became very curious about the coexistence of those two things. And I would do, I mean, I do I write about the joy journal in my book? That's so crazy that I don't mm-hmm. even remember it. Mm-hmm. I don't write about it. So, mm-hmm. so I'm the person who kept a joy journal at some point in my life when I was in my early 20s because I wanted to document what joy looked like in my life. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought it was unfair. This is the part, the part of me that's like wired, like I said, wired to, to respond to injustice. I was on this like quest, right? This was around the time of like Deepak Chopra and, you know, what's the other guy's name? Eckhart Tolle. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Ian Levanzan and all mm-hmm. of the, all the, 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 the help. Remember the help? Right. Not, the, not, <laughs> yeah. not the help. The no, secret. not the help. The, the secret. secret. Yeah, the secret. <laughs> The help. You're trying to <laughs> manifest secret. shit. Right? Right. Yeah. Right. I was, I was like, okay, I don't know. I, I didn't have quite the language yet, but what I did have was a job that didn't pay me shit mm-hmm. and a child to take care of by myself. Mm-hmm. And the secret cost like $119. I will never forget look watching that whole infomercial oh, and get into the end and being like, Seven CDs for a hundred. I can't afford that. That was the secret. That was the secret. secret. Exactly. (laughs) You know, you can, you can buy the book. You know, I just, everything, every message that I got during that time, and I'm not trying to disparage any of those people or things, but for me as a single woman, single mother, every message I got said, joy is right out there somewhere. If you can just get your coins together to, to put, you know, to get it. It's mm-hmm. just right beyond your reach. It was always outside of you. And I was like, so what about people who can't afford it? We just don't, we just don't get joy. We, I was like, that can't be right. There's no way that God set us up in a world that joy is for the rich mm-hmm. <laughs> or the privileged. I just don't believe it. it ran up against what I believed. Speaking what you were saying, Amanda, about how those things mesh together it ran up against everything I believed about who we are and what we deserved and how power and privilege work. I bought a book from the dollar store. Go to the goddamn dollar store and buy a journal. Go in your house and dust off one of them 17,000 journals that you got that you (laughs) fall in love with (laughs) because it's pretty and then you don't use. And you fill out the first page. 
I have 88. Write, you fill out the first page, first right? Page. Rip out that first page or fold it and <laughs> fold it to the back and write joy at the top. <laughs> and you got a joy journal. But my, my point in saying that is that I am the person who wrote down, I wanted to document what felt like joy. Mm-hmm. Because I felt like if I can quantify it, then I don't have to afford what they're selling because I got it. That's right. Mm. And so the book had things in it like, <laughs> I mean, I've told this story before, but I, I can't believe I didn't put this in the book. I just, uh, whatever, next book. <laughs> but <laughs> but I used to pick up Kaya from daycare. And, you know, I wear my bracelets, everybody. Mm-hmm. It's like my signal. I've always wanted My mother gave them to me. And so Kaya would hear my bracelets as soon as I hit the door in the daycare. <laughs> and Kaya... Every single day when I got off of work and I get Kaya, you would hear Kaya say, my mommy's here. (laughs) And then you hear, you know, (laughs) running down a thing. And I'd be waiting at the end of the hallway and Kaya would, and I would write that down because that was my joy. That was the Mm -hmm. most joyous part of the day. I felt, even if it was for 10 minutes, I felt so good. I I felt nothing bad. Right. Mm -hmm. It was stuff like I would get on the phone with my girls and I would laugh until my stomach hurts and I had tears coming out my eyes. You can't pay for that. Mm -mm. It didn't stop me from being triggered. It didn't stop me from feeling sad, but it existed in the same body. Mm. And once I started to document that and I was like, okay, (laughs) you can't sell me shit no more. I'm not buying (laughs) any of you. I might buy your book (laughs) and read it, but I'm not buying them CDs. I'm not taking... Saving up my money to go and try. I'm not doing that. I can't afford to. And it almost became like a part of my ministry to talk to my personal sort of ministry, not like religious. To spread that as a, as a word, like, yo, we have joy. We have to name it. The problem is that other people tell us what we find joyous is not, doesn't qualify. Mm. Right? So a bunch of black girls sitting together laughing, or white girls, even if you, I'm sure you all, because I can tell from your personalities, have had people tell you y'all are too loud. Yes. You laugh too loud. <laughs> y'all are too silly. You know, women are always too something. Mm-hmm. You get a group of a group of women together laughing, cackling, and somebody's like, oh my God, that's so unladylike. <laughs> you know, you get a group of black girls together talking, why are you all so loud? It's so ghetto. I like to be fucking loud and it brings <laughs> me joy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm getting off topic. Put that in your journal. None of that is off topic. No. That's the most on topic thing. It's the most on topic thing. The fact that you can have both of those exist in your body at the same time and you don't have to be all pain and you don't have to be all joy all the time. No. No. It's not possible. No. (laughs) It's not even possible. You know, it's just, it's just, uh, yeah. Mm. But but it started for me with that Maya Angelou clip. And and watching it and that question and I it took me a long time to get to like to answer that question, mm-hmm. but it planted a seed of like, huh, something else is possible. Yeah. yeah. With the twenty twenty four games in Paris on the horizon. I've gotten nostalgic about my international career, and when I look back, there are a few things I would have done differently to make sure I made the most of my time abroad. And one of those things was to learn a non-English language more fully. A daunting task, yes, but a much easier one when you consider that Rosetta Stone 
can get you fast language acquisition through their intuitive, research-based, dynamic immersion approach. That's why they're the most trusted language learning program and have been for years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. Whether it's Dutch, Arabic, or Chinese, don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, We Can Do Hard Things listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash we can. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash we can today. Then you went off to college and sister is dying to talk to you about this one part (laughs) that you wrote, this one sentence that you wrote, which maybe we've talked about for 13 hours. There's no way you thought about this sentence as much as we've thought about this sentence. Well, it goes, it goes back to what you were just talking about in the same body. Okay. So Mm -hmm. this is, I have to, to me, it might just seem like a, you know, sexy as hell little interlude, but Mm -hmm. to me, it blew my mind. Okay. So you're talking about you and Rob. They never, oh, oh, is right. Oh, they never played the music for long, maybe two songs. But whenever they did, we found each other and let our whatever pent up sexual energy we were both trying to ignore. We danced like no one else was there, like it was a mating ritual and we had fire in our bellies. I loved every minute of it. It was the first time in my life that I got to safely explore my sexuality with no demands on my body. Mm. Can you talk about this? Because I feel like it's the uh, it's another double bind that you talk about, which is that mm-hmm. for so many survivors, it's the very same bodies that are the portals through which we access this pleasure and sexuality are the same portals that were poisoned by our assaulters with shame and hypervigilance. Yeah. And it's like being told to run and have fun on a playground full of landmines. Like how... Oof. How does that, how do we explore safely in the midst of trauma? Like when do women ever get to do that? Just how? Let me say this first. This part, uh, first of all, you're the first person in the the thousands of interviews I've done to bring up this part and to bring up Rob, whose name is actually C.O. because I had to change it in the book. Um, I'm bringing him up because he just recently passed away. I know. And it's, and it, it is, I'm still really um, raw behind it because he was one of my first loves. And we remained friends up until his death. He died in June, on June 1st. Um, and he will never know. I wanted him to read this, right? I really want, I wish I had given him, anyway, it doesn't matter. But I really wanted him to read this because I wanted him to know how important that relationship had been to me and had remained for so long. He and I, you know, later on we dated and actually for real dated, but he was my friend. He was so respectful and everything I knew about relationships, including the the boyfriend that I had at the time, there was always pressure and it was always tenuous, right? 
either there was the forced situation, which obviously was terrible, but even after that, and I think this also happens to a lot of survivors, this is what you're talking about. You have, you have a, some, you experience some kind of sexual assault in college and high school and, you know, before then elementary school. And then you're trying to live your life the way people say you're supposed to live. You're supposed to get a boyfriend. You're supposed to date. You're supposed to do whatever. And there's the regular world of like, maybe not rapists, but harassers and, and people who, who think it's okay to touch you without consent or these really like situations that we get entangled in where consent is on a sliding scale, it seems like. And I had all of these other things that had happened too. It was so important to me. And I think people listening will understand this. I never stopped. I developed like a normal child, right? I had went through puberty, which meant I had the hormones, which meant I felt sexual and I wanted to explore. I could not explore in the way that everybody else could. I actually thought, and this was part of my downfall, I thought the first person I have sex with is who I got to be with Mm -hmm. for the rest of my life. This is it. And it happened to be my daughter's father. So that's it. I'm I'm stuck with him. If he turns out to be a bad guy, I just have to put up with it because you put out, you know, so that's some of the Catholic stuff, but it's also some of the like, this is the only way you can be a good girl. You're already bad enough, right? Don't be out mm-hmm. here. N- now you're going to be a whore. I mean, mm-hmm. that's just really, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Do you want God to literally come down himself and just tap you on the shoulder, right? And so I thought that's the way to deal with it. And then I met him. And I'm Caribbean. We love, I love reggae. I love to move my body. I love to, you know, to be that way. And I would do it at home in my room. You know, you'd be, I'd be practicing and doing all of that, but with an actual boy, I couldn't go to the places that he allowed me to go to those places. We'd finish dancing and that would be it. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was just like, and then there was a part of me that was kind of like, don't I owe you something? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's the other mm-hmm. message that, that, that girls are given and, and all, what all the trauma does to you as well. I'd be like, I, I thought you were supposed to know, hmm. mm-hmm. you know, I, I had to cycle through that. We went through our whole freshman year. I mean, I had a boyfriend at home, even though he was cheating on me and having a baby by somebody else, but I was, I was trying to be loyal. And yeah, we went through our whole freshman year. We did not kiss. We did not date. We didn't touch outside of the way that we danced on that dance floor. And it allowed me to understand my body as a sexual being as a, as a person who can feel pleasure and that pleasure does not have to be balanced with trauma of some sort. And it was just another form of liberation. It was so beautiful. And, and that's how he was. Even when we dated, he was, he was super sensitive to the things that had happened and super sensitive to my needs in those ways. He's just a, he's a wonderful person. It just, you know, it didn't work out that we would be together, but he was still a wonderful person. Oh, I'm sorry that you lost him. I May he rest. Lost. Yeah. Okay, listeners, this is going to be sad. Okay, we're going to have to pause this beautiful conversation right there, but we're going to pick it back up on Thursday. So in the meantime, pick up Tarana's book, Unbound. It's out now, and the book needs to be in your hands and on your shelves. And then come back here in two days, and we'll hear more from Tarana. You're not going to want to miss part two of our conversation. In the meantime, until then, 
when life gets hard, we're going to remember that we can do hard things. And we're also going to remember to rest. Okay, see you soon. I give you Tish Melton and Brandy Carlisle. I walked through fire, I came out the other side.
We Can Do Hard Things is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Especially be sure to rate and review the podcast if you really liked it. If you didn't, don't worry about it. It's fine.